Imagine with me, it's high noon. So it's very, very, very hot. It's the Middle East where it's almost always hot. But at high noon, when the sun is at its peak, it's as hot as it can be. And there's a well, and earlier in the morning, there were many, many people there from the village gossiping, as people sometimes do, about people in the village and things that were going on and talking and talking and talking. And mostly the women there were getting water. And so 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m., all of this has happened, and everyone gets back into their home, their hut, their small uh, little abode that has a roof on it so that by noon, no one is out, and everyone is back in their, in their home. The sun is scorching hot, and it's on the dirt, and it's oppressive. But at high noon, there's, there's one person who decides to come out and actually get water then. And she's the only one. And she comes at high noon because she knows that no one else will be there. No one else she has to see. Everyone in the village knows each other. It's like a small town. Everyone else knows each other's business, which is actually usually not a good thing, right? And she makes her way towards the well, and her skin is cracked because she's walked this path so many times, and the sun is always beating down on her. And as she walks step after step after step, she thinks about why she has to come to the well at noon and why she can't come at 9 a.m. when everyone else is there. And as she thinks about it, she thinks about her past. She thinks about where she's been. She doesn't really smile when she's thinking about it. She feels very actually sad, very upset why she has to come at, at noon. And as she gets to the well and looks into the water and sees her face, she just has to stop again. She's, she's numb. Right? She's actually numb. But she's not numb to the extent that she can't remember her past, but she's tried to numb herself. But she's still haunted by who she is. Right, this is creative, but this is the woman at the well from John chapter four. And we know that she comes at noon because John tells us. And we know that she comes at noon because no one else would be there at noon. And so I'm being a bit creative of why she came there. Her past, her story was no doubt very, very hard. And for all of us, we all have a past. Right, all of us. All of us have a past. And many of us have great parts of our past and wonderful things about our past. And many of us have parts of our past that we're haunted by, that are very difficult. And this weekend's message is about facing your past. About how all of us can be at high noon in our life and come to the well. Because we don't want anyone else asking any more questions. We don't want to live through that again or talk about that again or deal with that again. But we don't want to stay at high noon. And that's not good either. And thankfully, this woman ends up meeting a man at the well who changes her. The three points of the message, number one, how your past shapes you. Secondly, wrong ways to face your past. And finally, redeeming and facing your past. How your past shapes you, wrong ways to face your past, and redeeming and facing your past. Number one, how your past shapes you. That could also be titled, how doesn't your past shape you? Right, who here is not shaped by their past? All that you and I have is our past. We don't have anybody else's past, right? Wherever we go, 
as they say, there we are. <laughs> it's only us. We, our, our past shapes us deeply. William Faulkner, the great American writer, he said famously, the past is not dead. It's not even past. The past may literally happen. Past, okay, present. That was just past. Pre that was just right. It literally happens like that, but it doesn't stay there, does it? It doesn't, you can't just put the past in a tomb and say, I can just forget about it, even though we try. It can stay with us. It can be with us. Right? Our, our past is deeply shaping to us, and people in our past are deeply shaping to us. Our, our family is probably one of, if not the most formative uh, people groups that we will be with in our entire life. And if we had two parents, or if we didn't have two parents, if we have parents that got divorced, right? these things all shape how we are parents or how we are not parents. Right? You can't escape escape that. Your family is instrumental in who you are for good and for not as good. Your parents shape you. Lack of parents shape you. Your relationships shape you. Your friendships shape you. Your romantic relationships shape you. All of these things are shaping you. All of these things are accumulating. And so now you're actually responding in the present sometimes based on things that happened five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago because of something someone said or something someone did that has so shaped you and molded you that you can't actually leave it in the past. It stays with you in the present. Evan Thomas's book, Being Nixon, showcases President Richard Nixon as a very complex man. As I think, if you know Nixon, he's very complex. Very, very complex. But he's one who was fueled by a deep desire to be liked, to be affirmed, to be loved. He had high self-doubt and high anxiety his whole life his whole life. Evan Thomas in his book says this. He says part of that was Nixon's personality, but uh, another part was also his parents. His father was a combative, aggressive disciplinarian. His, his mother was a sweet-tempered but emotionally distant woman who withheld any signs of affection to Richard. Henry Kissinger, who served under Richard Nixon, said, can you imagine what this man might have been like if someone had loved him. And you see that Richard Nixon, who became president of the United States and it ended in infamy, spent much of his life trying to find the affection that his parents never gave him. Being president and yet being haunted by your past, right? You, you, you don't naturally have trust issues. You don't naturally have acceptance issues. We have trust issues because someone betrayed us or someone slandered us. And so now we don't trust people. It's harder to trust people. If we're in a relationship, right, and it can be great and awesome, and this guy's amazing, or this girl's amazing, but our last relationship ended just terribly with the person maybe having an affair or just being emotionally or physically abusive. That stays with you. And so in this next relationship, though everything's been going well, the second maybe there's conflict or issues, we go back to this other relationship, and maybe we think this person's going to leave like the other person did or that we want to leave. And it's hard to accept love or receive love if we've never been loved, if, if maybe our parents abandoned us. Maybe a spouse abandoned us, a friend abandoned us. Maybe someone close to us dies when we're young. And that shapes how we view life and death and how we view God. Who is he? Why is he like this? Why would he allow this? And we see everything through the prism of our past. Right, our personalities and our, um, our nature and our nurture, they shape how we communicate, how we do conflict, right? This is very true of, of me. I didn't even know this because I was just 
a much younger and stupider man when I got married, and I thought that my wife and I were much more similar than we are. We're actually very, very different. And I remember telling her, Emily, it's fine. I'm, I'm a conflict enjoyer. I enjoy conflict. I want you to tell me about what's going on with me. And I'm just used to it. My family was conflict heavy. And so we just re- I'm just ready to go about it. You know, we can get in the ring. We can fight. And we can do all of these. No problem. And she would start to bring up things to me. This is before we got married, but we were seriously dating. And she'd bring up things to me. And I would just, like, respond terribly. Like awfully, like I would just kind of just shut down like physically and take everything so personally. She'd bring in something even small. If I said something, if I did something, and I would just be like, no, don't tell me that. Nope, don't, don't do that. And she, and she would bring up, I thought you wanted me to like share this. I thought this was who you were. And I was like, yeah, I know. It's, who, it's just having a bad day, right? Just having over and over again. And so as we do in premarital, uh, the, the couple that counseled us, the uh, woman said at one time, was just really profound. She said, Artie, actually, I think you've kind of misdiagnosed your past and how you actually, it affects your present. I remember thinking, well, I don't, I don't think so. I'm pretty familiar with my family. And she was like, I actually think all the other members, I had a very great, healthy, wonderful family, but even that, right, they're still sinners, still broken, still not perfect. She said, Every, everyone else in your family was conflict heavy, but you were the person of peace. You didn't like conflict. You would always, everyone wanted to get along. You were kind of the band-aid. And so anytime people would raise their voice, you would try and soothe it and, and bring balm over it. And when it didn't happen, you would just kind of curl up, right, and just feel like you f- you're a failure you're, or you've been defeated. And so then when everyone brings up conflict, you either want to try and solve it, or if you feel like you can't, you just run away. And that affects you now, which is why you pull back when Emily brings criticism, because you don't want to go there. I remember thinking, that is exactly right. <laughs> But I never actually knew how how much of my past shaped me. I wasn't even aware of it, how I acted about my towards my wife. Not that I'm now conflict enjoying, but I've grown a lot. (laughs) And I want to create space for Emily to bring things to me because I didn't want to be a prisoner of that. Our past shapes us. My, My point here is that the past informs the present. William Shakespeare wrote in The Tempest that Past is prologue. And prologue is like the beginning to a scene. And what he means is that the past sets up the present. It creates the conditions for the present. It creates conditions for me. For the woman at the well, her past shaped why she came at high noon. If she had a different past, she would have come early in the morning with everyone else. Been there with all of her friends. Gossiping, talking, having fun but she had a different past than them. She was a Samaritan. She wasn't Jewish and she was in Israel and Samaritans were looked down upon as inferior, as an inferior ethnicity, as an inferior race. She spent her whole life being discriminated against by Jewish people, right? She was a woman, so she faced severe gender discrimination and gender inequality because she was a woman. And in first century Israel, a Samaritan woman had absolutely no rights. She, we find out via Jesus, has been married five times and is currently living with a man who is not her husband, who is likely married to someone else. Part of that will be her sin, and part of that will likely be the sin of the men who are taking advantage of her. So she probably has marital and sexual shame and embarrassment and sin in her life. All of these things coming together in a perfect storm as she walked up to the well. In fear, in shame, in embarrassment, and exhaustion. What if we apply Henry Kissinger's question to her? Can you imagine what this woman might have been like if someone had actually loved her? 
how she might be different. And we can all be like her, right? We can all be like her. Our, our past shapes our present and it can dictate our future. It can dictate our future. It will dictate our future. It will. It will. It does. It does. And that's why we have to face it. That's why we have to go there. I know. I can feel it. We start talking about things like this and we just think, I don't, I don't want to. My past is the parts that I want to open up and talk about, but to really go to the hard parts, to the deep parts, to the pain, to the sins that I've done, to the sins that have been done to me, I don't want to go there because I put it away. And so when we start to think about it, maybe some of you are already tuning me out and just saying, I just want to get through this because it's, I, just, I can't even engage because if you don't even know, RD, you don't even know. I just want to say, I appreciate how you feel. I appreciate what you're bringing here. But I also want to say, if, if we can't find a way to face our past and find healing, we will never experience deeper joy and deeper fullness and deeper health in life with Jesus here and now. It'll always be something which haunts us. And so that's why we have to dig. And that's why we have to go there. Because if we don't, even if we pretend that we aren't, we're prisoners of our past. And the relationships we have will be far less than they could be. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, before we do that, let's say what we usually do when we try and face our past. It doesn't work out very well. So second point is wrong ways to face your past. I have three broad points here. Though there are many, many ways in this message, there's just not time to get in all the ways, but I picked three big uh, categories here by which to think about wrong ways that we face our past, our past, that you face your past, that I face my past. I've done all of these in different times in my life, even this week. So I am learning with you how to do this. I am on the journey with you. Number one, wrong ways to face your past. Deny it. Deny it. Suppress it. Don't acknowledge it. Right? Don't go there. In Western culture, we celebrate this. Right? Even in church culture, we celebrate this. And two ways specifically that we do this is, number one, keep it private. Don't ask, don't tell, right? Uh, don't have your emotions come to the surface. Don't have your feelings come to the surface. And maybe you were told in your life, if you had emotion or had feeling, just to can that because no one wants to hear about it. No one cares about how you think, how you feel. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Maybe you even heard that from an authority figure, a parent, a grandparent, a coach, a pastor. And so you hear it once or twice. That's all you have to hear it. You don't want to open up. You want to close down because we say, no, we're strong. We don't, we don't want to go there. Just don't give me any of your junk. It's just I got too much on my own plate. And so things just fester inside and they just grow and grow and grow inside. But in Western culture, it's, it's just like we don't, we get nervous about emotions and feelings. Things get awkward in the room, right? You're having a pleasant Thanksgiving dinner. You're talking about basically nothing. Someone brings up something kind of intense. It's like, oh, no. Oh, we're about to go there. Please, I got to get up and go to the restroom. <laughs> I, I, this is too awkward. And oftentimes we stop right before things would actually really change. And so sometimes we just say, let's just minimize it. You don't feel it. Just deny it. Secondly, we have people that specifically just say, well, just look forward, right? Move forward. Past is past. 
You can't do anything about it. Just keep moving forward. Better days are coming. Be positive. Think better. It's going to get better in the future. And I just want to say, no, it won't. <laughs> because it's still you. If you, broken and, um, and, and hurt and, and bent, are trying to think thoughts positively in your own power, you can't do it. It's impossible. And so sometimes people that just go fast, right, they're very driven, they just want to keep moving forward, right? They can be kind of positive on the outside, but actually inside, things are just going crazy. It's just kind of forward momentum, all steam ahead. And they don't create any type of space to actually think about the things that are actually happening in their life. Because if they dwell on it or think about it, then they just fall into this massive rut. And so we just keep moving forward. That never happened. That, nope, we'll just keep going. Things are going to get better. As if you're going to be any different. If everything else stays the same. And so we deny it. And pretend that we're not actually prisoners of our past. Brene Brown in her book, Rising Strong, she writes this, our past and our hurts don't go away simply because we don't acknowledge them. In fact, left unchecked, they fester, they grow and lead to behaviors that are completely out of line with whom we want to be. And this thinking can sabotage our relationships and our careers. Denying it doesn't make it go away. It just makes it grow and grow and grow and grow. Secondly, we don't just deny it, we try and escape from it. We, we try and medicate our way out of it. We try and numb ourselves to the pain of, of things that we've done or things that other people have done to us or hard things in our life. If we could just numb ourselves and not feel it anymore, then maybe things would be better. And so we pursue all kinds of things to bring in pleasure in our life to make us forget or to help us try and move on. But nothing ever got solved. We just filled something else in our life. We never dealt with the real problem. But for time to time, we feel better. The Bible calls those things idols. Sometimes we call them addictions. An idol is simply anything we look to for, only, for what only God can give us, satisfaction, belonging, acceptance. Only God can truly give us that. But we look to other people and other things to bring that into our life. But we know that they really can't because only God can. But many of us, because of things that we've done, things that have been done to us, pain in our life, we have these addictions to try and escape from our past. And just for a, maybe just for a moment, feel better feel an escape from the weight and the burden. We have alcohol addiction. We have drug addiction. We have food addiction, food eating addiction. We have relationship addiction, always having to be in a relationship. We have money addiction. We have work addiction. We have control addiction. We have all of these things that we're addicted to because if we could just taste them, if we could just in that moment feel it. We just get high enough. We just, we just get drunk enough. We just, in that relationship, feel the person tell us they love us enough. And for a moment, everything is good. But it doesn't last, and we have to keep going back and back and back to that thing. Because we're not addressing what's really wrong in our hearts. We're just putting band-aids on the wound. And band-aids won't fix it. The woman at the well, she was trying to escape from it. She had five husbands. Now, some of this was no doubt men taking advantage of her, but some of it was no doubt her desire to feel accepted by anyone, by someone. Would someone just please love me? Would someone love me for me? And husband after husband after husband no doubt divorced her because they had all the power and no doubt used her or abused her emotionally or physically. We, we don't know, but five husbands who have 
likely left her or passed away. And the man she's living with now is not even her husband. And she's trying to escape from the pain of rejection and abandonment and rejection and abandonment by being with someone else who could just hold her and feel her and touch her. But then it goes away. And she walks through the well alone again. Lastly, we don't just deny it. We don't just escape from it. Sometimes we dwell on it. If denying it is not good, then dwelling on it is also equally not good. If all that we do is think about it, if all that we do is just think, I, you can't move on from something that happened, then that's not healthy either. This is especially sometimes true of sins that we commit, things that we do. It's hard to move on from them. We can't believe I did this. How did I get to a place where I said this, where I did this, where I acted this way? Or even, even more so when things are done to us by other people out of our control, not our fault. People hurt us, people abuse us, people take advantage of us. Things we can't actually forget, and it's hard for us to move on from those things, right? If you suffer physical trauma of any kind, your body literally is rewired, and you think differently. Psychologically, physiologically. Now your, your present is always surrounded by your past. How can you move on from these things? And you, can't, you don't actually move on. We stay paralyzed, living in fear, living as prisoners, wanting to get out, not wanting the, the future to be like the past, but unable to find a way out. We deny it, we escape from it, we dwell on it, but we're not ever really facing it and we'll never be healed. The African-American author, Yolanda Vanzet, she writes this, she says, you can accept or reject the way you are treated by other people, but until you heal the wounds of your past, you will continue to bleed. You can bandage the bleeding with food, with alcohol, with drugs, with work, with cigarettes, with sex, but eventually it will all ooze through and stain your life. You must find the strength to open the wounds. Stick your hands inside, pull out the core of the pain that is holding you in your past, the memories, and make peace with them. How can, we, how can we find the strength to open wounds like that? To kind of get rid of the Band-Aids and actually have real surgery. Well, that's the final point. Redeeming and facing your past. The only way to go into your heart like that or your past like that is for like the woman at the well is to meet one man. Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can offer you not a way out of your past, but a way to transform and redeem your past. He's the only one who even offers it. And what are the odds he happens to show up at the well that day? Come on. Only Jesus Christ can redeem our past, can invite us into a new story and show us how all of our story, the good, the bad, and the ugly is being used for your good, for his glory, and that others could be blessed. It's only through Jesus Christ. Beth Moore, uh, she wrote a great book called When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, which I highly recommend. She writes this, Satan knows that the nature of humankind is to act out of how we feel rather than what we know. One of our most important defenses against the influence of the enemy will be learning how to behave out of what we know is truth rather than what we feel. 
A hearty amen to that. So here's what we know. Here's what we know if we're in Christ. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means all of your past, all of the things that have been done to you and that you have done. God knows all about all of those things. And Paul writes, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. If we repent of our sin, which simply means coming back to God, trusting him and obeying him, finding our way home in him. If we would do that, then we can see all of our past redeemed, all of our sins atoned for, made up for. And you and I can know that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, there is none. Only in and through Jesus Christ. Right. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> right. Did you hear that I just said there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Now, it doesn't mean that there's not any conviction for those in Christ Jesus. There is Holy Spirit conviction. There are times we have to own our sin, own our junk. We have to do that. We can't just keep blame shifting our whole life. That's not healthy either. But conviction from the Holy Spirit is not meant to shame us or guilt us, but to bring us into wholeness and flourishing. The Holy Spirit convicts us so we'll know the error of our ways and come back to wholeness and restoration in Jesus. And so there is conviction from the Spirit, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, there is now no condemnation. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all atoned for. All of them. By the grace of Jesus. Secondly, 1 John 3, 19 through 20 this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. What a couple verses here. I love, I just love this image. This is how we know we belong to the truth. We belong to God. How, how do we know? How can we set our hearts at rest in his presence? If our hearts condemn us, which sometimes they can, right? Even those of us who follow Jesus, our hearts can condemn us. We can feel guilty. We can feel ashamed. We can feel dirty. Our hearts can condemn us. But what does First John say? John says, but God is greater than our hearts. See, the great truth here is that this is how we, we know we belong to the truth, that when we are in the presence of God, our hearts can actually be at rest and not in fear. Right, the holy God of the universe, for whom no sin can actually be in his presence, you and I can actually be before him and have our hearts at perfect rest, calm, beating just perfectly, knowing that all of my Sins are covered by Jesus Christ. See, when you are, um, go outside and get kind of dirty, and you come inside, but the house is kind of lit, but kind of not lit, you can't really see maybe all the things on your face or on your clothes. You can kind of see some of it. But if you, like in our house, in our bathroom, are just like these big, huge lights. And when you turn on those lights, it's like, how, where was this, on my face? <laughs> like, where was this huge thing? Like, and you just see all this dirt, the leaves, all these. When the lights come on, you see all of the impurities that you didn't even know in kind of the, the small light. And what John is saying is he's saying, one day, all the lights are going to come on. And in that moment, you may think, but look at all the stuff of my life. I didn't even know how much junk and filth and guilt there was. And what John is saying 
is that because of Jesus Christ, when the lights come on, God sees you as blameless and spotless and pure. Not because you don't have any spots on you, but because Jesus Christ has taken them all upon himself and gone to the cross and buried them there. So you and I can have our hearts set at rest in his presence. And when our hearts condemn us, we can know that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than how we feel, and he loves us, and he stayed with us. And so we can have confidence. No matter what, God is always for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, with Christ, a follower of Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Just like that in an instant, when we come to faith in Christ. Everything has changed. The old is gone, the new has come, new creation, you and I. New, holy, spotless, blameless. These are the true things we need to be thinking about. We need to do less time listening to ourselves and more time talking to ourselves about the truths of who God is, of what God says in his word, because our feelings will deceive us and we'll go up and down and up and down and up and down and every single event in our life will just dictate how we feel instead of saying, this is what God says is true. This is how I should be thinking and this should actually affect then my heart. Romans 8, 1, 1 John 3. Ephesians 1, Mark's message last week is a fantastic example of this. Because of Jesus, we don't have to to deny our past. We can face it honestly and have confidence that he knows it. See, Jesus Christ already knows everything about your past. He knows what I said last week? Yes. He knows what I did years ago? Yes, he knows all about it. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Nothing is hidden from his heart. He knows everything everything. And so now you and I can have the power to actually face our past honestly because we have him with us. And so we can look at our past and not be defeated by it, but say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there, but God, you're walking with me through it. Because of Jesus, we don't have to escape our past. We can find healing and satisfaction with Jesus alone. We don't have to pursue all of these other gods, all of these other idols, all of these other addictions to try and find the peace that we long for because it can only be found in Jesus. And as we follow him and walk with him, he will bring more and more and more healing into our life and he will be the one who truly satisfies us, who truly gives us life in his name. And so everything else just becomes this small, small God and he becomes majestic and beautiful and sufficient. And because of Jesus, we don't have to dwell on our past or be defined by our past. We can dwell on him and be defined by him and his love for us. See, Jesus, to the woman at the well, if you don't know this story, the woman at the well is a woman who goes to a well. And she's going to get literal water. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, shows up, a Jew. Shouldn't be talking to a woman, shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan. And she wants water. And he begins to offer her more than just water. And she's like, where can I get the water you're talking about? The living water, right? Like, where is it? And what Jesus says, he says to her, he says, go call your husband. Now, how do you think in that moment she must have felt? Exposed? You know all about me? How did you know? Can you feel the guilt? That's why I come here at noon, so no one will know. How do you know? Are you here to shame me? Are you here to guilt me? Are you here to just run me through the coals? And the woman says, she said, I don't have a husband, which is literally true, but not really true (laughs) because she's trying to deny the fact that she's living with someone, right? Denying, escaping. And Jesus says, go call your husband 
And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not even your husband. See, in that moment, I can imagine that she probably felt small. She begins to talk to him about um, different things in, in prophecy, and yet they come back again, and Jesus says, the kind of water I'm offering you will never run out, ever. And she says, sir, where in the world can I get this water, right? And then she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all of these things. And Jesus Christ says to her, that's me. I am he. I am the one speaking with you. Am he. He offers her living water, a way through her past to have a different future. Well, there's so much here. Just a few practical steps as we close. So just think about facing your, facing your past. Um, number one, know Jesus. That may seem obvious coming into church. Um, but without that, everything else on this list is, is really pointless. It just really is. And I know I just described in point three here um, so much of that, but I just want to hit this, like knowing Jesus is the only way you and I can face our past honestly and find healing. And so maybe it's, it's writing out scripture promises. Maybe, um, maybe it's every time we hear something that's not true about ourselves or the enemy condemns us or, or um, just accuses us. We write down a promise in scripture that's actually really true, not what the enemy says, not what our flesh says, not what your dad said 20 years ago. That's not the truth of your life. What are the promises of scripture that are true in your life? Write them down. Actually memorize them so that we know, right? The enemy doesn't want you in the word. Because when we don't know the word of God, we begin to think all of these things that aren't true about ourselves and about God. And so one of the most courageous things we can do is just be in God's word and have it wash over us and say, these things are really true of even me. Even me. Even me. Like I said earlier, spend less time listening to yourself and more time talking to yourself about Jesus and about who he is. Pray, pray, pray. Maybe pray most of all for courage. I know um, that this is hard, right? I know that there are many of you who are like you, don't, like, you don't know. I checked out like at the very beginning because I just can't even handle this because you're just bringing up things in my life that are too hard, my friend's life that are too hard, my family's life that are, that are too hard. And I just want to say um, we need to pray for courage to do this, that the Spirit would actually help us, not just good intentions, not just coming out here saying, oh, that was really, I need to really do this. But that we'd actually pray, Lord, would you help me actually look at the hard things in my life? How can I actually not just keep burying them deeper and deeper to actually find healing and hope in them? That I could be healthier, that I could be more whole, that I could be more put together. Pray for courage. Pray for assurance that as you begin to dig and dig and dig and begin discovering even the dark, dark parts of your heart you didn't even know were there, God's assurances of his love for you and Jesus come over you. And you're just amazed even more and more by his grace, by his love, by his mercy. Pray for courage. Secondly, get curious about your feelings and emotions. I'm borrowing this from Brene Brown. Get curious about your feelings and emotions. Okay, I know this may seem weird. I know some of you are like, this is just, this is weird, fluffy stuff. This is weird psychological babble. Like, get in touch with my feelings. Great, awesome, RD. Really impressive. I just, want, I just want to say, your feelings are not, don't need to be your slave. They aren't your guide to everything that's true. But if you deny how you feel, you're not helping yourself, right? You're not actually helping yourself find 
healing at all. And so we need to get curious about our feelings and emotions. Why do I get so angry when my spouse says this? And the, right, the response is not because my spouse is just a jerk. That's not actually, that's how we rationalize away from dealing with why we get so angry about things. Well, my boss, he just, he's an idiot. So that's why I'm acting this way, right? You understand. See how we just blame shift, how we rationalize. I'm not saying your boss is not a jerk. He may be. <laughs> she may be. But there might be deeper things beneath the surface of why you feel this way. How does your body feel, right? When someone says things to you, do you actually start to feel things? You get a headache. You get pain in your chest. Why? Because you're reacting in some way to something. Dig into that. Don't just deny it. Don't just say, ah, I'm just feeling things. Forget it. If you get curious about your feelings and why you're responding the way that you do, you can begin to unpack what it is in your path that's shaping how you respond. Now, don't, don't let your feelings drive your life. Let Jesus Christ drive your life. But don't ignore your feelings as unimportant or as weird or as stupid or as silly. God has given us feelings and emotions. And in the proper context of scripture reading and prayer in a community, they can help guide us in the deeper truths of who we are and what has happened and how that influences now. Third, get in and stay in community. Um, the enemy wants to isolate you, make you on your own, make you think you're the only one dealing with any of this. Right? No one else knows what you're going through. No one else can understand. Everyone else here at Door Creek Church has everything put together, which we all know is just a bunch of baloney. Everyone, everyone here has broken stuff. Everyone else, everyone here is just broken, me included, me especially maybe. All of us are. And so we need to find people in our life that we can actually honestly process things with and, and share things with. People in our life that know us, that love us. And when they speak hard things to us, when they want to hear about our story, we know they're going to be there for us. They're not saying these things to shame us or to guilt us, but they're people in our life who love us and want to help us. And then we want to help them with their stories and their journeys, right? And so being a part of a life group or being a part of a church is central to that. We cannot do it on our own. We need other people in our life who know us and can shape us and can help us. Friends, I'm not saying you have to share your story with everyone you meet. But there should be people in your life, even beyond the spouse, if you're married, who you can unpack the dark things in your heart to and know that when you share it with them, they are just going to listen and help. Because that helps us grow. The last point, I mean, there, there are many more practical tips here, but time. Last point is this. God will use all of your story for his purpose. God will use every single part of your story for his purpose. No part of your life from the second you were born until right now, until the moment that you pass away is wasted by God. There are no accidents in your journey. There are no ultimately any mistakes. There may be things in your life you think that is just, I can't imagine how that worked out. I can't imagine how that happened, but there's no part of your life that God will not redeem, that God will not transform for his glory and for your good and for that others could be blessed through you. How does the story of the woman at the well end? Oftentimes it ends with how I just ended it. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, but that's actually not how it ends. You've got to keep reading, which is always important in the Bible. <laughs> You never know what you might miss. So Jesus exposes her sin gently but kindly. And she comes to see him as the Messiah. And remember, everyone in this town knows who this woman is. I love at the end of the story here, it'll be on the screen, chapter 4, verse 39, it says this. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, right? So this woman in the Gospel of John becomes the very first evangelist in the entire Gospel. She becomes the first one. Can you think of a more unlikely suspect? And is that not true of everyone in the scriptures? Is that not true of you and I? Only by God's grace are we part of the family of God. Only by that. She becomes the first evangelist. And here's, here's the point. God does not only care about the message of the gospel. He cares about the messengers of the gospel. He cares not just about giving some facts, but about your story and how God has changed your story. She says, she goes to the whole town. You can imagine them laughing. Imagine them thinking, this, this woman is crazy, as always. But we finally see her. She's always hiding away. And she says, come see a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And by her testimony, by her story, by the power of the gospel inside of her, many people come to believe in Jesus because of her, because of her story, because of what God has done in her life, because she met Jesus Christ by a will. Her life is changed. And because her life was changed, I know many other people's lives in that town in Samaria were changed too. Yes, by the Holy Spirit, of course, but working through people. Because no one can argue with your testimony. No one can say, I don't think God did that. You can just say, well, five seconds ago I was blind. And now I can see. And that's my story. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Cling to it, hold on to it. Let this be a verse that never leaves your mind and your heart. And we know that in all things, in good things, in bad things, in suffering, in disease, in getting fired, in being broken up with, in going to jail, in all things, God is working. Every part of your life, none of it's going to be wasted. And everything, think of your whole life, things you can't even imagine now, how God's going to work a miracle in it. He's going to do it. Everything in your life is working together for the good of those who love God, who've been called according not to your purpose, but to his purpose. And he's putting all the puzzle pieces together so that one day God gets all the glory for the mess that we've made of our lives and not us. And we can say, God, you don't just want me to forget my past. You don't just want me to think, okay, I've come to faith in Christ now, so my past doesn't matter. You want us to actually look at our past and say how you've been there the whole time. Even before we knew Christ, God was working in your life. God has always been working in your life, pursuing you, trying to rescue you, coming after you because he loves you and has affection for you. And listen to this. The greatest pain in your life can be your greatest platform for proclaiming the grace of God. The greatest pain and the greatest suffering in your life can be your greatest ministry to other people, not to say, look at how I pulled myself up, but look what God did through Jesus in my life. Look what he did in my life. You don't even know my past, but God does. And now I can look at my past honestly, and I can try and find healing and hope there. And the same is true for all of us, that we as people who follow Jesus are broken and bruised and battered. But all of us can say to ourselves over and over again and to a watching world, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done and stayed.
Let's pray. Father, I know it's a heavy subject. Father, I just pray um, a 40-minute message is not going to get it done. <laughs> it's, just, it's just scratching open the very, very surface of so many things I know that are going on. People are in the room right now. People are listening to this on podcast and the video. Father, I just pray wherever we are, North Campus Chapel here, that many of us um, are young and don't have a lot maybe in our past. But even then, I know there are things that we regret, things that we wish we could get a do-over. But maybe there are many of us who are older, and who think you don't know my story. And I, Father, I just pray that they would know that you know their story. And today, right now, could be the beginning of a new story. And that they, like the woman at the well, could meet your son, Jesus, and no longer be in fear and shame, but be in freedom and fullness. Father, I thank you that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. And that all of us, because of the work of your son, can put our hearts at rest in your presence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen.